should be good. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Continental Writing Club. Welcome back. Also, uh, we'd like to start off by maybe slightly apologizing for how giddy we were last episode. We've gotten some comments that we talked over each other a bit and were maybe a bit hard to hear in places. Uh, we apologize for your difficulty in hearing us, but not for our enthusiasm. Uh, I don't mind at all. I'm a difficult person. Enjoy it. <laughs> I thought it was just fucking funny. Yeah, we yeah. were. We yeah, were. We were in rare form. High on life. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of high on life, not high on life at the moment, or not even high at the moment, but definitely drinking a delicious Miller High Life. That is true. We are drinking the high life. Exactly. I, it's I am, the champagne of beers. I am the sole holdout because I can't drink beer. <laughs> I know, she's it. so sad. Seriously, recommend good ciders to her. It would make everything better. Yeah. She's tried most of the ciders you have available. I feel like you've tried. I've tried all the ones at the bodega, I think. Uh, you have to start a bingo sheet. Yeah, they're all so sweet. Yeah. So sweet. You can try. And I need to remember the brands of ciders that you've had tried that were sweet, or that weren't sweet, rather. And then, like, ask the bodega if they would carry those. <laughs> because if you if you know a brand that you've tried, yeah. that would be good. You really just would like one, one cider that is dry. We will find it. We will find it, young one. Yeah. I'm older, older than you. Than you. Yeah. <laughs> the baby <clears throat> yeah oh, by the way for, for for those of you who don't know us because maybe you're listening to these out of order i'm amy i'm reagan i'm brenna yeah i did not say brenda i said i'm brenna you you did say that the first time yeah yeah she's got a pro you know not a problem a uh, chip on her shoulder perhaps look i just want any any time that i walk into like a, a candy store an airport, whatever. If they have a rotating rack oh. of, of car dangles or like knives that are engraved, I just yeah. one time want to see my name on yeah, one. Yeah, because my name is everywhere. Okay, but yours is like a last name that turned into a first name. Bite your tongue. Mine is <laughs> You're a accurate. common first name in Ireland and nobody gets it and I just really... Maybe it's because you're not in Ireland. Yeah, all right. I guess I'm moving. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so this week... Yeah. Our prompts. Actually, I roll right on into the prompts. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. we should probably stick to exactly what we meant to do, which was this podcast. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Jump, cool. jump cool. on in there. Cool. Welcome to the podcast. We're doing the podcast thing now. Uh, the prompts for this week were mine, and they were, they had never noticed a door there before. A reunion. If you could physically occupy an object for a time. And that's it. Yeah. That yeah. was the prompts. So, let's find out what stories we do. For the Continental Writing Club, we are three ladies who write 500 words or more. Um, and we want to finish our stories. We write new short fiction every week uh, based on the prompts. Other week. Every other week. Every Fortnightly. Fortnightly. Yep, that's... I don't have the time to do it every week. Oh, God. I barely have the time forbid. to do it this fortnight. I'm yeah. really busy. It doesn't matter. It's we only going it. to get worse for me. <laughs> I believe in you. You're going to be okay. <laughs> We're all right at time management. We are all right at it. It's going to be fine. So, hey, why don't you start us off? What prompt did you do for this cycle? Which so, is chapter what? This should be number five. It is chapter five? It's chapter five. I couldn't tell if it was five or six. It's Actually. chapter five because we had chapter four last week. Mm-hmm. Oh. Last two weeks. For, oh, Fortnite. Last Fortnite. <laughs> Whatever. The last one was chapter four. <laughs> so this is chapter five. Okay. Um. 
So yeah, I I picked. They had never noticed that door there before. Hmm. Um, no title as usual. Uh, but here we go. Stop making fun <laughs> of me. <laughs> And that wonderful noise you hear is the refrigerator. Look, guys, we have a studio apartment to work with. Take it. (laughs) But we'll figure it out. We're also using a new microphone this time. It's an actual real microphone, so this may sound really different. That's true. Who knows? It is, by the way, a Blue Yeti. Yeah, that's right. We went legit. Thank you to our friends and sponsors and family. My brother it's and very fancy. Gifted them. So thanks, guys. Jeff and Jess. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Here's thanks. hoping we can actually utilize it appropriately. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Okay. Back to the point. Uh, my story. Untitled. <laughs> Why did you pause for so long? <laughs> because she snickered, and I was like, "Am I gonna laugh? Am I gonna laugh? Yep, I'm gonna laugh." <clears throat> All right. And now you're both doing it. <laughs> you're waiting so long. I'm taking your breath. I just, I, guys, I got, I got a we bad case of the giggles today. No, and every time again. you pause and you're about to start talking, I don't know why, but it's like my brain thinks it's the best joke ever, and it immediately makes me laugh. Maybe you should share some of whatever you're smoking. I'm not smoking anything. We're <laughs> eating. But I can share if you guys want some. I have some. Of your not smoked thing. Yeah. Like beer? I've got some beer. I can't drink beer. <laughs> someday. Someday <laughs> I will start this story. And that is going to be now. Alice opened the door with a smile, eyes crinkling in the afternoon sunlight. Charlotte, you came, she exclaimed. She quickly ran her hands over her shirt, flicking it straight. I did, the woman standing on her stoop said, smiling back. She had a casserole dish in one hand, and she embraced Alice lightly with her free one. I just had to see your new home. Ushering her inside, Alice briskly took the dish away from Charlotte to put in the kitchen. You can help me unpack, she teased with a wink. Jacob has just been no help at all, what with the new promotion. So sad that he hasn't been around to enjoy the results of his hard work, Charlotte said, eyeing the home in appreciation. It's so light and airy in here. I didn't expect that for some reason. Alice blinked in surprise. Really? Well, it was built almost a century ago, right? For some reason, I thought that meant it would be darker. It's almost 90 years old, Alice said. And I could see if we had any darker colors on the walls, how it could feel that way. But we wanted to keep it bright, and you don't really notice the ceilings being lower than more modern houses. Plus, neither of us are tall, so no worries there. Charlotte took the time to explore the living and dining rooms while Alice set about opening a bottle of wine. Do you think you'll add anything? There's no crown molding, but I don't know how you feel about that. We thought about it, Alice called from the kitchen, searching the boxes for wine glasses. But Jacob likes the shelf along the dining room ceiling. I think he wants to display some of his antique toys there. And it wouldn't really go with the aesthetic of the house if we weren't consistent. Charlotte hummed, in either understanding or agreement, and continued her snooping. In the kitchen, Alice made a noise of triumph as she finally located the glasses. She quickly poured both of them some wine and brought them out to where Charlotte was peering up the staircase. I'll show you the upstairs, Alice said, gesturing for the other woman to go up first. They spent the next ten minutes looking at a master bedroom and bath, a guest bedroom, and a bedroom-come-office. After discussing in depth the benefits versus aesthetics of having two sinks instead of one, they made their way back downstairs. 
What about a basement? Charlotte asked, once they were on the first floor again. These places usually have one. Is Jacob going to turn it into a man cave? Alice hesitated. We do have one, but it's not finished, she said. Honestly, I don't like it down there. It's dark and dank, and Jacob better get used to doing the laundry until we figure out what to do with it. Charlotte laughed, a hint of disbelief in her tone. Seriously, it's that bad? She reached for the door. Now I have to see it. Okay, Alice said with a strained smile, watching as Charlotte started down the stairs. But I'm not leaving the staircase. Scaredy cat, Charlotte teased. She eased herself down the stairs, listening to the creaks of the old wooden steps as she went. At the bottom, she could just make out in the gloom from the basement windows a string for an overhead light, and she reached out to pull it. Oh. Charlotte turned to look around the room. It looked, to her, like any other unfinished basement. There were some boxes from the move, a brand new washer and dryer, and some cobwebs on the exposed ceiling beams. A pile of old gardening tools lay in the corner, and some mostly empty shelving units were against a few of the walls. It's not that bad down here, actually. You had me thinking it was haunted or something. Alice's grimace could be audibly heard in her chuckle. Charlotte ventured further into the room. There was a door that led to the outside, and a few windows set high up in the walls to let in a modicum of daylight. It's really just a boring basement, Alice said loudly, gripping the stair railing with her hand as she remained glued halfway down them. We didn't have one before, so not much stuff to put in it. She took a large gulp of her wine, finishing it off. Charlotte peered into a side room, seeing the boiler and not much else. It'd be a waste of space if you didn't do anything with it, she called back. She took a sip from her glass. I've killed my wine, so I'm going back up, Alice said, already starting to retreat. I'll be right there, Charlotte said, heading back towards the stairs. She had almost started up them when it caught her eye. Hey, where's the little door lead to? Alice paused in the doorway at the top, turning to raise an eyebrow at the other woman. Little door? Charlotte pointed at what appeared to be a small hatch in one of the walls, hidden partially behind one of the shelving units. There. What is it, for some minuscule closet? She gasped in excitement. Is it a safe? Maybe there's a safe back there. I don't think so, Alice said, reluctantly inching her way back down. She only went far enough so that she could stoop to look at where Charlotte was pointing. Oh, I actually think that's a dumbwaiter. A what? You know, one of those things for lifting trays of food up and down floors. I'm not sure why the house had one, but there's definitely a spot in the master bedroom where it was walled up. I remember Jacob asking about the loss of square footage between the bathroom and the closet. I didn't know we had a door for it down here. Charlotte frowned a little in disappointment. Suddenly, she squared her shoulders and marched forward. What are you doing? Alice asked, coming a few steps further down as if she had been yanked along by the other woman. I want to see if it opens, Charlotte replied. She moved the shelving unit, thankfully empty, with little effort. Grabbing onto the handle, she gave it a yank. It didn't open. Setting her now empty wine glass on the shelf, Charlotte wrapped both hands around the handle and leaned back, pulling. Still, it wouldn't budge. Jeez, she gasped. It's jammed tight. There's probably just dead bugs back there, Alice said. Come on, let it go. Let's go back up. In a second, Charlotte said. She rolled her shoulders, wrapped her hands around the handle again, set one foot on the wall, and pulled. With the sound of cracking wood, the door flew open, sending Charlotte stumbling. Alice shrieked, oh my god, and turned her face away as she cringed. Recovering, Charlotte laughed. Whoops, she said, waiting for Alice to look at her before displaying the broken-off piece of door that had come with her fall. Alice looked at her in shock before she burst out laughing. She laughed so hard, tears rolled down her face, and she rested her weight heavily on one of the banisters. I thought, I don't know what I thought, she gasped out. You scared the shit out of me. She looked at the broken dumbwaiter door. Jacob is going to lose his mind when he sees that, 
Charlotte grimaced. I'll move the shelf in front of it. He'll never know. She moved back towards the wall, reaching out to fully open the broken door. She glanced around the inside before placing the piece in her hand inside. She moved the shelving unit back a few inches to the side in order to more fully cover the dumbwaiter, then followed Alice out of the basement. What was inside? Alice asked as she closed the basement door, the worry in her face smoothing out as the latch snicked shut. Huh? Oh, nothing. It was just a ton of dust and some old rope. What was? Both women made noises of surprise at the new voice, startling. They turned to see Jacob standing in the entryway, a look of genial confusion on his face. Oh, nothing, Alice replied with an easy smile, moving to kiss her husband on the cheek. I was just showing Charlotte the house. You're home early. He accepted the brush of her lips, jetting his head to the side. Boss sent me home. The basement, too? I thought you weren't going down there. I'm not, Alice assured, smiling widely. Like I said, just dust. Jacob looked between the two of them. And rope. Charlotte nodded, smiling too. And rope. Alice raised her empty glass. More wine? <laughs> love that story. Thank you. I love Charlotte. <laughs> She's very... I mean, they, they both just read waspy to me, but... But something about Charlotte's very endearing wasp. Be like, hee hee, I'm up to no good. Hee hee. <laughs> like, pour me some wine and I would like the town on fire. That is like the kind of person, you, you did a great job writing these characters. They feel mm-hmm. very rich. But the um, the kind of person who walks into a place and immediately thinks about what they can change in it. Like, yeah. that, I don't know. That That's troublesome. <laughs> but I love this story. This reminds me very of like a very Shirley Jackson kind of feel to it. I read this and I was horrified and I do not like the husband. I remember you guys saying that when I read it, um, I didn't find it that weird. I was reading more intimacy into it, mm. but hearing you read it out loud, I get a very different feel from it. Very different. So clearly my headcanon voices do not match yours, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely find that there's an unspoken discomfort that just runs throughout. Yeah. Well, and it's the little things too, like mm-hmm. the way you're setting it up, uh, as for your writing style, is usually very sparse on detail with just enough peppered in. And the things that you do, like giving one woman room to snoop and then the other not. And then seeing that, okay, seeing that Alice is uncomfortable on the stairs and using words like, I've killed my wine, I'm going back up. Mm -hmm. It starts the suggestion of more menace. And then if you also consider the fact that the husband's a collector. Yeah. And doesn't seem to like the fact that she's gone downstairs. Also, I mean, Bluebeard. This is a Bluebeard story. It's very Bluebeard. Yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. It's a great one. Yeah. I, I wanted to inject... Like, I wanted a very mundane story that felt very uncomfortable, which to me is, like, the essence of Shirley Jackson. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Because I love her. She finds her. the horror in everyday things. Yeah. Which is lovely. Yeah. So I wanted this really, like, they've just moved in, her friends come over, brought a casserole, you know, they're drinking wine while they tour the house, you know, there's there's this thing in the basement, they go, they check it out, they go back upstairs, the husband comes home. Like, it's a very mundane story, but I wanted to give it just, like an edge so and this I, is uh, this is one of those things that i mentioned last week i think as an example of or maybe it was the week before of how you can wrap something up without really giving us everything where i probably would have filled in so much other unnecessary details that would have bogged it down and required it to be 15 chapters longer because there was too much detail that's just the perfect amount of you glimpsed into someone's life and that's all you get is the surface level you don't know what they're thinking you don't know why they moved you don't know anything all mm-hmm. you know that something's not right. <laughs> and it feels right. like there's those little details. Like, he just got a promotion, but he got sent home early. Like, yeah. everything's just... Ugh. 
hate him. <laughs> he makes me scared. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your story. It was really nice. Thank you. Um, okay, cool. So I guess I'll do my story now. Mm -hmm. um, so I also chose the door prompt, which is fun. Yay. Um, There's just a thing about doors. I do. I know. I'm obsessed yeah. with them. That's probably why I made the prompt. Yeah. I like the, uh, the presidential. Anyway, this was what I wrote and it had it would okay yeah at first the doors began appearing subtly they found places just on the edge of vision of perception like the details of a dream about 10 minutes into the day they all began as startling or striking and moved into fuzzy obscuring within moments to look at the door straight on was to begin the steady unraveling of the edges of the frame the doors at first would appear just to the side of other doors or at the wrong angles in an alley in places and in heights that humans would not have put them for their use. The first door I noticed was in my favorite bar. I had popped in for a beer and to possibly flirt with the waitress I had building a rapport with for almost the whole summer when I went to use the toilets and noticed a door inside the bathroom just beside the real door I had walked through moments before. I saw its reflection in the mirror as I entered its color and texture seemingly identical to the real door, but the handle was shinier and had an adorned knob where the real door had a flat metal panel with a keyhole to press against. I used the toilet, wondering what the door was for and for how long it had been there. I washed my hands and eyed it in the reflection. If I looked at it too closely, even in the mirror's reflection, the distance between us felt as if it was growing, like I was being pushed from four feet away from the door to six, then 10, then 20 feet. I remember the shock as I turned around and found behind me a real door where it had always been, less than four feet away, when my reflection had just shown a chasm there. I had asked the staff about the new door and was met with confused looks. There wasn't any other door in the restroom, they told me. I declined the rest of my drink, embarrassed that I'd had too much to drink, and went home. The next time I went to the bar, the doors had been found out. I learned later how lucky I had been to have only seen it in a reflection. After planting themselves in varied and sideways locations, the doors started inviting guests. Sometimes they would appear to shimmer, or a light would glow through the bottom of the door jam, or it would sound as if someone was knocking from the other side, shave and a haircut, waiting for the two-bit beat. Then, someone would respond. They'd approach the door, open it up, knock against it, touch the handle, or the knocker, or trace the filigree. It always ended the same. The doors weren't, of course, doors to elsewhere, as our doors are. They instead were all doors to one very specific place. Each door, regardless of its locations, always brought the person who engaged with it to that place. In the ten or so years that the doors were first here, only ten or so people came back out, and lacking the vocabulary to describe it, all referred to it as that place. That place somehow lured you close, and then something physically pulled you in. For some people, it was a force, like a wind, that pushed you in through the doorway, which, of course, was a portal. For others, it was a tall, wiry-looking person with black or blue hair and bright yellow eyes that grabbed you by the head or hair or arms you threw up in protection and dragged you in. For others, it was a beautiful woman with long black hair that pulled you in, lovingly, teasingly. It didn't really matter, because the result was the same, regardless. In that place, everything was cold on the left and hot on the right. Survivors told of great stone pillars that edged you into a large open circle, a clearing with water filling an indentation in the very center. They all said they knew it was shallow, but they all also knew that they would drown if they touched it. One of them said they drank from it, but none of the other survivors gave that any credibility. Then, its description also has some variety, according to the survivors. 
A being or beast, well-muscled and entirely black, slick-looking, sometimes with a heavy tail like a lizard, sometimes with eyes on the side of its head, sometimes with no facial features, but the feeling of being watched in the chest area of of the being would always be in the center of the island of that ring of water. It supposedly made noises, like a Siamese cat in want, like a tape played in reverse, like a brick scraping against more bricks. It was never clear why or how the survivors were released, but they all told the same thing of how it was done. After some period of being observed, the beast or being would walk on top of the water toward the person, take them by the hand, and lead them to the door they came in through, returning them. All the survivors also told of how they heard screaming and pounding, doorknobs rattling at all the doors they passed. Of all of the survivors, there was never established any one connecting trait, except all of the survivors reported being the middle child in their nuclear family. Researchers, government, and police organizations tried for a while to establish the why associated with this fact, but ultimately left the public only with the knowledge that these two discrete facts were simply linked by correlation rather than causation. Still, humans are superstitious, and it was observed that shortly after this fact was made public knowledge, family size increased from 1.5 children per household to 3.5. Middle children were colloquially called lucky ones. The next 10 or so years after that, or roughly 20 or so years since the first arrival, for clarity, was the period when people first reported things coming out from the doors rather than luring people in. Hindsight, that opportunity for perfect vision, and often the jeering, self-mocking reflection of ourselves was cruel to us then. In hindsight, many people noticed how few of us had thought to lock the doors from our side. Easily accessible doors in public spaces had a uniform, sealed black box placed over them courtesy of the government. But funding for these seals over doors in private spaces was locked up in bureaucracy and required initial funds to be paid for and then requested reimbursement for by private citizens. Many of them, economically stressed citizens, did not do this. Hard to reach, oddly placed doors were almost never looked at, and if they did begin to lure someone away, there was usually someone to intervene before they could reach the portal. These were the first insidious gates to open. It's hard to describe the shadows that stealed out of these door-not doors. They were deep, dark, all-absorbing black in color. No part of them reflective or bright, human-shaped. They smelled like wet autumn leaves, something about them tricking the senses into thinking crisp when they were near. In the dark of a room, they were always somehow darker, always a shadow. In a bright room, or in daylight, they were impossible to define. They looked both flat and muscled as an average human, both menacing and innocuous. To the horror of many, most of them mimicked our poise and posture, though they never engaged with the world as we do. They would, for instance, recline in a chair, but never reach for the television remote, radio, or cat, as humans in that chair might have done. Dogs, taking a cue from us, were scared or aggressive to the shadow people. Cats, unnerved but ever watchful, though some cats would attack the ones that did not mimic humans. The shadow people would not attack cats, it seemed, but nimbly slip back through the nearest door. As soon as they appeared, everyone assumed they were dangerous and treated them as a predator seeking prey. Whole houses were evacuated when one appeared, and an average family did not want to challenge or fight this new unknown. Law enforcers were called and tasked to challenge the squatting rights or loitering of these matte-dark demons, but no weapon seemed to find any part of them to injure in all the darkness. Religious figures and tokens were invoked with much the same effect. The first aggressive action from the shadow people was really an orchestrated attack. In a public park, during a city's farmer market on a Saturday morning, three discreet shadows moved in to simultaneously attack and publicly debone a middle-aged woman, sampling cheese from a local goat dairy. She appeared to be alone in a sea of people, 
her neighborhood and community when the shadow people sliced at her with their dark shadow blades. Maybe they were their hands? And yanked and tugged away at her flesh and fat and muscle to pull her skeleton into the sunlight, much to her and the crowd's protestations. It all took less than two minutes, and then they left her flesh as they ran away with her skeleton to sneak into the nearest doorways to them. It was as if the world exploded. The attack was fast and gruesome. The target chosen for an unknown reason. Mayhem and fear drove countries, governments, and communities to draft middle children to lead repelling crews, though there was no evidence that this would succeed or support how it could. Many of the lucky ones sent to sites with shadow people lurking were baffled as to how they were to send the shadow person away, and several of them were simply brought through the doors, not to be seen again. It was Nawal Karam, a Syrian-born physics major at the Harvey Mudd College in California, and the third of five children to Marwan and Zaina Karam, who first found the weapon to repel, perhaps even injure the shadow people, though it did not affect the doorknocked doors. While playing with her cat, which was having a staring or observation contest with a shadow, standing in the corner of the studio apartment, she dragged the cat toy laser pointer to the feet of the shadow and switched it off trying to create a disappearing laser beam. A moment after the laser touched the foot of the shadow person, it picked its foot up and slinked immediately to the nearest door. This was one of the first reactions she had ever seen the shadow people have to the human world and soon determined the source to be the laser pointer made for her ninth grade science fair, a cat toy. That's it, that's all I wrote. (laughs) Well, I, I like the way how it feels a little bit like, the narrative to, like, this is the background info to our situation right now. Like, it mm-hmm. feels like a, almost like a military or governmental document that's, like, talking about this situation. It's like, let me give you the backfill. Yeah. And it just, like, this has happened then, and then this, and then this is our reaction, and we had the lucky ones, and this is why there was the population boom, and, you know, etc. I freaking love that, because I, that's always something I love when I'm reading books, and I like the world, I like the characters, I'm interested in the plot, sure, but... I'm always left wondering, okay, well, they just, like, bullied through this town, did all this shit, and left. But what about the people in the town? How did they recover from this thing? Like, what did the government do when all this craziness was going on, but only the five characters did anything? I find that hard to believe. The fact that you actually consider funding issues and whether or not, like, people who don't have income would ever even get a chance to be defended again, you know, defended against the doors. Like, I, I love those details. And I remember thinking immediately that just seeing the door out of the peripheral revision peripheral of your vision in the beginning was creepy enough because obviously I'm obsessed with doors and the thing I take pictures of all the time like I love them so that alone was I was like yes this this suffices this answers this story prompt but then when you go further and just the simple sentence of and that's when things started to come through the doors no also the the like delayed time frame it's like normally if this were a movie it'd be like you know, the doors appeared, and then, like, a week later, things started coming out. And then a week yeah. later, they started killing things. It's like, no, this is decades. Yeah. This is it. This be- they became comfortable with these things. Yeah. They probably had, like, clubs and raves around them. They probably became hot spots. They probably became Pokemon spots. Let's be honest. <laughs> I like the idea of, like, us acclimating to horror. Yeah. And I think that's what I was trying to play with here, is the idea that, like, okay, the first stage of horror was just, oh, you're unnerving and new, and why are you here, and why do you... And then, and then the next stage, oh, you're you're luring people in. We know that you lure people in, but only some of our doors are, like, guarded and blocked yeah. from our side. And then to have that be like, okay, well, now we know, and those are the lucky ones, and middle children are lucky, and we're fine. We'll figure <laughs> it out. Then to have something come out and publicly debone a woman on the street, I mean, like, 
I don't know. I, I like the idea that, that we can become too comfortable with horror. Complacency. Yeah. It's a real thing. Also, it Im- yeah. <laughs> immediately amused me to think, which of the people that I know would have been lucky ones? Like, I'm a middle child. I'm a middle child. I'm a youngest. Oh, you would have died. <laughs> well, and it's not necessarily true. Like, would right. you have even gone through the door? And Oh, maybe you never would have even been lured. Right? Yeah. And so that we know that they lure people. It, it doesn't matter. Okay. That's, yeah, it's so fascinating. Yes. There, it makes, because you gave that much information, it makes me immediately think of a billion other what-if questions that I think is fascinating. It really makes you stay with the story in the world longer. Yeah. Yeah. So, well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I should probably have, like, um, typed that, finished that. Yeah, that would have been cool. Any, any probably those? type that. Instead of reading from your little journal. That was my homework assignment. Okay, so when we started writing stories, I write by hand a lot. I didn't realize I would have to print these out so we could, like, (laughs) read them aloud to people. Yeah, that's that's a thing. Yeah. So, for those of you listening, we had to move locations. Yeah. Yay. This might sound a little different. It might. It it probably... We know it sounds different, and we appreciate you being so flexible with us. We, um... There were some babby issues. There's a a one-and-a-half-year-old and a four-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old that uh, desperately needed to sleep and bubble bath and so we could not be recording however as a heads up now at the new location there's also a continued baby problem but they're not ours they're next door we can't do anything about them it's their bedtime they're about to get rowdy because that's what happens never mind peace and quiet in your own home (laughs) no it's okay Uh, it's fine thank you for sticking with us how about uh reagan you want to your story? I thought that, was a, that transition, I thought you were going to say more about other things. No. Yes. Uh, all right. So I'm starting my story over, which you won't know because you don't hear the other part that we're cutting out. But now you know anyway, because she told you. You know in the bloopers. Um, uh, the prompt I did was the same one because doors. Yeah. Doors where they shouldn't be. <laughs> it was after hours and information, etc. was closed to business. All along its banks of offices and work floors, darkness had settled like a bear to hibernation. It had tucked itself into the corners and crannies, the nooks and niches. In the distance, a vacuum cleaner hummed away, an unknown worker readying the building for the next day. Here and there, a small pool of golden light swam in the dark, forgotten by the day's workers, all save one. In the banks of darkened desks on the lowest floor, a single lamp flickered and buzzed in its socket with intention, casting its humble glow on stacks of papers and a man of slight build. Henry sat comfortably amid the soft light of his desk lamp, humming a tuneless tune along with the distant vacuum. He tapped his pen idly on his memo pad as he considered the papers in front of him. Most things fell easily into place, but this file had him stumped. It defied sorting. Henry was one of the few employees who worked in the archives, the oft-overlooked assemblage of all known information. Henry loved his job. He was always the first to arrive each morning and the last to depart each evening, and though it wasn't strictly allowed, He'd even stayed the night on several occasions. There was nothing he enjoyed more than poring over stacks of old reports, their fragile, yellowed edges curling and tattered from decades of handling and resorting. His co-workers teased that he resembled some of those dusty old pages. He was, at the best of times, anachronistic. Information Etc. was a fast-paced office, with numerous departments filled with eager workers catering to the various needs of the uninformed. The gathering office was always overworked and typically attracted arrogant workers who liked always knowing more than the rest. Their jobs were fast-paced, and so were they, fast-talking, fast-moving, and always ready to discard yesterday's trending data to make room for fresher stock. They made Henry nervous and quite uncomfortable, and the idea that a thing could be so fervently hunted one day and easily dismissed the next was a little heartbreaking in his eyes. 
The Interface Office found new and inventive ways to share information with the uninformed, and they were, on the whole, a friendly and talkative bunch. Though Henry enjoyed chatting with members from Interface in the break rooms or hallways, he found their enthusiasm for new social platforms and technology to be intimidating. He had yet to meet one that didn't try to say goodbye in person just to say hello via a tumbling, tweeting, blinking, dancing, and singing app of the week. He often let those friendships fade away after an acceptable number of pokes, thumbs, hearts, and winks. Customer relations were a mysterious crew that rarely seemed to occupy their offices. Henry wasn't entirely sure they even had a dedicated staff. It would explain the sheer amount of corrections the gathering department had to send out as incorrect data was subsequently further corrupted and eventually rectified. It was a little frightening how uninformed the customers truly were. It wore heavily on the interface office's workers as they tried their best to share information etc.'s vast knowledge with the masses. Internal infrastructure and maintenance was responsible for collating linked information and for updating things as information evolved, as well as removal of repetitive or no longer utilized information. Of course, there were also the top offices, home to the executives responsible for the whole enterprise, but they worked from home and had little bearing on the day-to-day workflow. Their offices were often left locked and dark, though ambient light glittered off of all the steel and glass surfaces. Henry found them all to be interesting, but he liked his home and archives best of all, where the linoleum tiles were faded mustard yellow and the ceilings were dark, umber-colored, tarnished metal, beaten and molded into beautiful floral motifs. The offices of the archive staff were in the oldest wing of the building, practically a compound unto themselves, full of low-ceiling hallways that crisscrossed in labyrinthine ways, dark and mysterious and forgotten. Most employees of information, etc., refused to come down to the archives, though they rarely had need to anyway because they found them to be claustrophobic and even a little bit frightening. Not Henry. Henry thought of the archives as an old friend. He knew almost all there was to know about them. He'd won the most knowledgeable award for the past decade. Despite all his years of knowing, he found himself quite entirely stumped as he stared down at that mysterious file. He had found it cast aside his co-worker's desk, but neither man had ever seen it before. He'd offered to find its home, but it had proven a more challenging task than he had anticipated. The pages inside were faded beyond deciphering, but there were patterns there. It tugged at his memory. He felt he should be able to see it if he just gave it more time. Henry brushed his fingers across the worn surface, feeling the ridges where careless handling had caused folds and wrinkles. Faint water stains created a marbled effect of taupe, sand, and cream so that Henry couldn't rightly say what shade of manila the folder should have been. With a frown, he leaned down over the name tab and rubbed his thumb along the peeling tape. The edge of a time-bleached blue tape curled back on itself and its absence revealed faded black script. Carefully, Henry thumbed the curled tape further, wincing as it tugged up bits of information with it in places. Once it was free, he lifted the folder up to the desk lamp and squinted at it. Basement 3, 8JD, AL, 45.63.23, said the folder's tab in a light, curling script of some forgotten archiver. It was just legible enough for Henry to know it was entirely inaccurate. At the very least, it was in the wrong place. The archives did not have a third basement, nor did it have three levels of basement. There was only the one, and its filing system did not resemble the tab's code. Henry frowned and leaned back in his chair, which emitted a slow and familiar creak. A.L., he mused aloud. Perhaps it was Alabama. Perhaps the numbers were year. But then, where would the month and day fall? With a shake of his head, Henry decided he would set the puzzle aside for the night. With a groan from both Henry and his chair, he stood and picked up a stack of files that he knew the origins for. He would just take them to their homes in the archives and then be on his way. Henry's quiet footsteps and rustling clothing seemed louder than normal as he made his way through the dimly lit hallways. 
He followed the sloping floor down into the anterior hall, which connected access to the archives. With internal infrastructure and maintenance, and the redundancy shop where information was burned, if deemed no longer usable. Henry sniffed the air out of habit and was glad to smell no hint of fire. He hated to see old files go to the flames, even if they were often incorrect or outdated. His heavy keyring jingled like a pocket full of coins, rich with the power of access to all the secrets of the world. He smiled as he tumbled the keys through his fingers, locating the thick, tarnished key with the infinity symbol head and the many teeth. So familiar was it in his hands that he didn't even need to look at the key or lock in order to open the door. The door swung open like a smile, and Henry smiled back. Like a whisper, he closed the door behind him and moved down the narrow hall to the Nexus Chamber, the hub where all the archive sections split and branched, great knowledge trees on everything from historical battles to every limited edition sneaker release. He glanced down to the top file in his hand, the life of an obscure Norwegian painter, specifically the period of their second divorce, and then glanced up at the broad, curved wall and its many doors. He moved towards a door bearing thin gold script in a series of number and letter combinations and ranges. It would take him to all things Norway, as well as many other things. As he brought his keys up, he thought he heard something behind him. Frowning, he turned to glance at the door leading back to the ant hall. The space behind Henry was as empty and still as it should have been, but there was something in the air, a presence. It was as if some great weight had settled in the room. Henry couldn't understand what would have caused it, but was suddenly unsettled. He hesitated, eyes darting along the length of the wall. Blank, 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 door, blank, 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 and back again. Nothing was out of place. He thought that perhaps he had been spending too much time making nice with the interface team, and their fear of the archives had tugged at his brain. It was foolish. This was his place. The archives were his... A whisper. He was certain he had heard it. His keys jangled loudly, jarring, offensive in the tense gloom of a nexus chamber. He shoved them in a pocket, muffling their clamoring agitation, but the damage had been done. He felt watched. He felt the hair on his arms rise, tingling and jittering in his spine, an electric impulse to run. Eyes painfully wide, alert, he scanned the length of wall again. Blank, 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 door, blank, 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 and back again. Blank, 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 door, blank, blank, blank. Henry gave himself a shake and pulled his gaze away from the length of wall. He was like a child again, running from the bathroom in the middle of the night, afraid of a sudden noise of the whooshing toilet as it flushed. When he looked up again, he was surprised to see a single sheet of paper near the door to the antehall. He must have dropped it out of the files somehow, and it had made the whispering sound as it fluttered to the ground. He wanted to laugh at himself. How silly he was being. How ridiculous it was to feel so relieved at a piece of paper. How ridiculous to have felt such fear at the darkness. Henry took the several steps with some lingering caution, then bent and retrieved the sheet of paper. The lighting of the nexus was poor, but he didn't need it to see that the face of the sheet was almost entirely empty. He stared at it, unmoving, rereading the single word that was written in a faded, light script, off-centered, more than halfway down the page. Heard. Henry turned the page over and squinted at a thin header that read, HJD AL 45.64.00. He felt the strange presence all around him, the weight that seemed to smother the air and the sound in the room. Despite that, a whisper, rather light, floated through the space before him. He watched the rectangle of glass in the door that glowed with the amber light of the hallway beyond. The whispering continued, grew in number, overlapping, obfuscating. Henry was frozen, fear a hot liquid feeling coursing through his muscles. The glow of the door seemed to grow brighter and sharper as he stared, too afraid to blink or move. 
There was someone on the other side. He was certain of it. He had never minded the emptiness of the Nexus before that moment, but it suddenly seemed to go on forever around him, cold and hollow and inhuman. Gripped by his fear, and more like his childhood self than ever before, he lunged into action, tearing the door open and rushing through it in one frantic motion. He slammed the door shut behind him and stared wildly to either side. But there was no one there. Henry was alone in the antehall. Internal infrastructure and maintenance, he read the plaque aloud as he scanned the hallway with more care. He pointed to the door, dark and locked, its interior spaces empty. For all Henry knew, nothing existed beyond that dark door. He approached it and tried the handle, found it locked, and was satisfied. Turning, he pointed to the door he had come from. Archives? His gaze slipped past a familiar door to a sliver of light in the wall just beyond. There, where there should have only been blank wall between the archives and redundancy, Henry stared at an unfamiliar door. He watched in horror as it creaked open another inch and the whispers seemed to call to him, filling his mind even while he could not decipher their meanings. Heart racing, he tore his eyes from the door and looked to the sheet of paper in his hand. It was filled from head to foot with herd in fresh shining ink. Henry? He jerked, slamming his knee against the underside of his desk. Glancing about him, he found he was at a desk. Stacks of files had served as a pleasant enough pillow, as indicated by the slight puddle of drool. He shook his head, confused, which was shared by his co-worker, Candace. "'What time is it?' Henry asked her awkwardly, while he tried to flatten his hair and readjust his tie. "'Just after nine. Did you sleep here again?' Candace's frown looked more the color of concern than judgment, but Henry felt the color of embarrassment on his cheeks all the same. "'I didn't—I hadn't meant to. There was just this one troublesome file—' He cleared his throat and shuffled files, searching for the guilty folder, but Candace wasn't interested. Kyle wants the Montgomery Wards pulled by lunch. I told him I'd ask you, since that really isn't my area, she trailed off, her question unasked but her meaning clear. Henry took a slow breath in, trying to reacquaint himself with the surroundings. He thought of the hallway one floor below them, and the strange whispers, the strange door. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I can pull the data. He tried a helpful smile, but he knew he still looked disheveled and confused. Candace smiled appreciatively, but there was a pitying turn to her eyebrows and the corners of her mouth. You be sure to take care of yourself. You work too much, buddy. Henry was, for the first time, inclined to agree. He nodded and turned his attention back to his desk as Candace wandered off to her own desk. After shifting a handful of files aside, Henry was starting to think he had dreamed the entire evening. But then he found the remnant of blue tape, curled on itself and stuck to the edge of another folder. Frantically, he dug through the other files, and at last he found the battered old folder for AL 456323. Only it no longer said that. He held the folder close and reread the line on the tab several times before he was satisfied that it was indeed changed. Basement 3, HJD, AL 456409. Henry read it quietly, shaking his head. He slipped the folder into a drawer and stood. There were other files to tend to. This mystery would simply have to wait, he decided. As Henry worked, he found the labyrinthine halls of the archive to be as they always were. Calm, quiet, mostly empty, vaguely musty and stale air that had mingled across the decades. Everything as it should be. It was his space again. So repetitive were his tasks that before long he forgot about the unsettling dream, and he even forgot about the defiant file. There were too many questions that needed answered, and answers that needed organizing. Butcher shops sold to rivals, accuracy of coin flip tosses, the number of families on the Mayflower, and so on. The day waned, and Henry found himself eager to sleep in his own bed, so he left with his co-workers. The next day, he did the same. For an entire week, Henry was happy to show up at the start of his shift and then leave when it ended. 
There was only the smallest nagging feeling, a nibbling feeling, a minuscule tugging at the back of his mind where he had firmly placed it. On Saturday, when Henry was pulling an extra shift as support for a new interface project, he finally listened to the call and pulled open the drawer. The puzzling file had waited for him, patient, but to his surprise, not unchanged. He frowned down at the information tab, which now read, Basement 3, HJD, AL, 457113. Confused, he opened the folder, hoping that perhaps information on the inside would have clarified over time. He felt his stomach lurch as his eyes fell across the word, heard, blanketing the page. At the very bottom of the page, it read, seen. Henry felt the goosebumps raising along his arms. He thought of the whispers that he had heard, countless, so many overlapping, indistinct voices, and he glanced at the words on the page. He stood, file in hand, and made for the hallway. He walked quickly through the silence, nearly jogging at times, his rubber soles making whining squeaks with every step. 457113, Henry considered aloud as he rushed through the halls. The papers in the file flapped noisily, fluttering and catching in the air with every swing of his arm. He fished for the key ring, but they caught on his pocket, pulling from his grasp and clattering loudly to the floor. What was it before? What was it? The keys? The paper? It was all too loud. His hallways were never this loud. This wasn't his archive. The familiarity had seeped out of it again, but that's what he needed. He needed that other version, that secret version, where someone or something else lingered. 45, 71. But it wasn't 71. 45, 23. No, no, it was 45 something 23. He continued muttering to himself as he rounded the corner at the bottom of the ramp and entered the antehall. He came to a stop, staring at the old archive doors with their tarnished handles and wavy glass panels. 45, 63, 23, he said with confidence. He'd remembered the first numbers he'd seen when he pulled the tape from the folder. But it had changed so many times since then, he still had no idea. The whispers seemed almost familiar this time, though he still startled. He frowned and cocked his head first to one side, then the other, leaning forward ever so slightly. It was no good. He could hear the whispers, but he couldn't quite understand, no matter how he tried. It was English, but it wasn't. Familiar syllables and intonations, but somehow all jumbled, all nonsense. He glanced to the right of the archive door, but the mysterious other door had not appeared. The hall was as it should have been save for the whispers. He felt a sudden pang in his chest, the sudden urge to cry. He cleared his throat and blinked away the burning, but the whispers played like a song, steering him to something he didn't understand, something inside himself. His hands shook and he looked to his shoes, taking purposeful, steadying breaths. A sliver of light fell across the dusty toes of Henry's Oxford. His heart hammered away in his chest and he was surprised he could still hear the whispers over it, but it wasn't really that he was hearing them. He knew them, he remembered them. He looked up at the door that should not have been there, with the trail of harsh light flowing out of it. He took a few steps towards it, searching for a plaque. The door was old and had been painted over several times so that it had a thickness to it. Its surface was matte black, but it felt appropriate somehow, like how shadows are dark but not truly. The not-quite-black door was narrow, like the sort that would hide a closet, and its handle and fittings were tarnished brass. Henry dropped the file, letting its pages flutter out in twos and threes before the file fell from his grip. The once-faded pages showed whole blocks of text now. Everything he'd ever looked up or organized in the archives. Everything that had ever been requested. Only now it was different, all mixed up in just the right ways. And Henry's mind was reeling. A page still mostly tucked into the manila folder read, Heard, seen, known, heard, seen, known, across the entire face. Basement 3. Henry read the plaque on the door's face. His voice felt trapped, broken. He shook his head and reached for the doorknob. 
just to feel the thing, test its objectness. It turned easily in his hand and felt cool to the touch, like metal should. The whispers were just noise, a constant white noise, filling his mind. He remembered everything he'd ever filed in the archives in painful clarity. The Norwegian painter's divorce, after her husband had lost his business and taken to gambling. The genealogy of an immigrant family and how their business was lost to rivals, but they started up another. The three resuscitations that had finally ended in his death after he drove off of a bridge. It had been his, all of it. The sheet read, heard, seen, known, remembered, understood, 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 H-J-D-A-L, 45-71-14. And the thin script marked the final hour of his afterlife. Henry pulled the door open and squinted into the harsh light. He did not look back at his beloved archive as he passed through the doorway and pulled the door labeled Basement 3, H-J-D, shut behind him. Yay! Yay! Um, I remember when I first read this story, um, before it even comes to when he recognizes that the the numbers are changing, Mm -hmm. is I got to the second one and I was like, wait a second. And I flipped back and I found the first one and I was like, it's different. (laughs) I wonder if they're all different. So every time I would come across a new one, I'd flip back and be like, what changed? What changed? What so changed? you were falling nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely also noticed that when I was reading it. And yeah. I remember thinking, I was trying to solve the puzzle along with it and be like, what is this? Is it a timestamp? Is it a code? Like, what's going on? And um, I mean, we all three like puzzles. So, yeah. uh, but, but it was written in such a way that I think that was easy to follow. Um, the thing that I didn't get until this reading, though, um, which I love the story, but so is he... Is this like where death takes him, or is he in the afterlife doing something and about to be reborn? I hadn't really decided, honestly. I was. I had kind of come to think. I had started out thinking that this was a place where everyone who died could kind of go. Right. But I don't actually think any of them were real. They were all like a place that his mind took him so he could deal with his mm. death. And it took him that many years, like a whole lifetime practically, to come to terms with the fact that. No, he's dead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> This is your death, dude. Get over it. <laughs> Jeez. Go through the door, Henry. Follow the light. Yeah. Uh, I love your story. I think it was really, really well done. And it was definitely over 500 words. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another long one. Sorry. No, it's good. It was, it's over 500 words, but it's, it's well crafted. It makes you feel it. It makes you understand the organization of all the things, too. And, like, I love libraries. So having this information <laughs> system, someone who is chilled out by being part of this information yeah. system the archives I, I do really love libraries as well especially yeah. fictional libraries really like yeah. tickle me um it had even though it it was not that kind of story it had just the slightest vibe of 1984 oh i can me. see that yeah all the organization and the overhead and the yeah just like the political the feeling of where he worked yeah made me think of like the beginning you know bits of of 1984 where you find out where the main character works. Yeah, because they works. process and disseminate information and they mm-hmm. redact yeah. information. It's yeah. the, it brought me to Dead Like Me, um, oh, yeah. which is a TV show and not a book at all, but that same setting where I was like, this is office work and we're all already doing it, but there's really no point to it. Life is meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> like, definitely had that vibe to me and, and redundant, I guess. Very redundant. And I... I realized, and that was the part I was thinking I should have edited out, maybe, was the whole unnecessary chunk at the beginning that explains all the other compartment departments. 
But I like the idea that his department was so different than the other departments, and yeah. that made him so different. Yeah. I like, actually, I really enjoyed that part, too, because I remember, like, hearing about the different ones and being like, oh, that is a sick burn on the customer service department. <laughs> is there anybody even there? You there know? actually isn't. There's no customer service. And there's yeah. That's a joke. They nice. Don't even exist. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The people in the interface uh, department, I mean, that's communications and marketing, and the idea, the, the way you quantify a lot of things in, in this story makes me really, really happy. Like, you have the door open with a smile that he meets with a smile. You have um, him feeling the color of something that doesn't usually ever get described by color, but then he is colored embarrassed afterward. And your linguistic oh, yeah. <laughs> use of doing that parallel with words that don't usually get used that way made me so happy. And when you were talking about the interface department and you were talking about, like, he waited the natural amount of time or emojis to let it happen ghost (laughs) right and i mean that's it's winks or nods or likes or flashy things or i mean yeah can anyone tell from the story that i don't do social media interfacing you feel like you love bitmoji that's i don't know what you're talking about i do like emojis no i said bitmoji they're the ones where you make an avatar that looks like yourself and it does crude things the fuck yeah oh like the awful like comic version of you yeah and it'll be like farting or like doing a big dumb cheesy thumbs up or something like that i don't much care for them but i think they're crass interesting thing i didn't know existed i guess i've seen them on the facebooks and just yeah didn't i thought they were like a halo halo (laughs) clearly the only i don't play xbox often the xbox like Oh yeah, the Xbox oh, like Avatar, Nebo, whatever they're called, Avatar or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. just an Avatar. Oh, I guess I'm thinking of the Wii. The Wii is is a, is a Amiibo. Yeah. yeah, all those little things you have to make a person, a version of yourself, just to access your own game system. It's like, why, why do you need a mini you looking at you while you play video games? Um, okay. Oh, we should go over. Oh shit, prompts. Next week's prompts. I have next night. Oh, thank you. That's what I was doing on my phone just now. I didn't even. Thank you. And they are Brennan's. I'm guessing. Yeah, you gave her the prompts. Yeah. So, thank you for joining us for this chapter of the CWC. The tumultuous fifth. Yeah, you know what they say about the fifth. Um, but <laughs> for the next fortnight, for chapter six, um, please write along with us or just tune in to hear what we wrote. Um, here are the prompts. One, write a story where someone falls in love. Two, write a story from the point of view of the reader. Three, write a story with a new monster. And with that, thanks for joining us. Yeah, we appreciate all the feedback we've gotten so far. We appreciate you tuning in and telling friends. And more importantly, we appreciate you reading and writing along with us. Yeah, yeah. It's very enjoyable. We loved getting all the feedback. And once again, thank you to Jeff and Jessica for supplying us with this fabulous new Blue Yeti microphone. Yeah, and we promise we'll try and change locations less. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Don't put that in. Nope. Read that first sentence wrong. This is going to be great. Wrong. Blit. But would I make a soup out of wine-tasting drinks that other people would spit back out if I was desperate enough? Yes, because I'm an apex predator and a survivor. <laughs> Again, soups profesh. Gusto. Buffalic. Read it again. I'm going to. You're not my mom. <laughs> Who taught you how to say that? Oh.
for... Game redacted. <laughs> Breakfast bundle. Come on, you've seen 80s movies. Get out of here, kid.